and welcome to another Scotswayhe podcast. And today it's all about the new anthology of writing from Bella Caledonia, covering the period 2007 to 2021. And on the video version, you will see copies being held up. And I'm joined by editor Mike Small and three of the contributors, including writer Neil Cooper, writer and performer Dougie Strang, and academic Alison Phipps. Hello, all. Hello. So, Mike, let's start with yourself. For those who don't know, tell us about Bella Caledonia and how it came about. Well, it came about in um, 2007 when uh, Kevin Williamson and I were talking about the political situation and the cultural situation and decided that we wanted to launch a a new magazine that combined both these approaches. And uh, both of us had been involved in different publishing ventures um, before. And uh, I suppose at that time, you know, uh, blogs and the technology of uh, publishing online uh, wasn't brand new, but had emerged and, and, and kind of platforms had become available that were free. And so the kind of uh, the means of production, if you like, of publishing had kind of radically altered from the days when you uh, were publishing in print and the distribution model was controlled by really one company in Scotland. So. It was, a, it was a transformation that we uh, tried to seize. And it started essentially just as a kind of two-man blog trying to make sense of the world and then kind of uh, emerge from there. And was there ever an idea that it would be uh, in a published format or was it always this kind of new, brave new world of online material? Yeah, we did have a very early print edition, uh, which kind of um, didn't, <laughs> didn't really go anywhere. It kind of petered out. But we have, we have produced uh, print uh, versions. We produced a magazine called Closer. Um, we produced three out of, it's supposed to be four. We'll maybe produce the fourth, um, like 10 years late. Um, so yeah, we have, we have played with print and obviously we've, we've published three books and we've now got an imprint uh, in collaboration with Lamington Books. So whilst I am constantly decrying the state of, print media, I actually quite like it. Yeah. <laughs> I think in some ways it's kind of, it's time seems to be coming around again, which is interesting Yeah, in itself. So what were the initial aims for Bella Caledonia? Well, actually we, <laughs> we held a meeting in 2007 saying that there should be a referendum for Scottish independence, <laughs> um, <laughs> which we thought was a good idea. Um, but um, I think um, we, we tried different slogans over our time. I remember an early one was uh, fresh thinking for the new republic, which I think <laughs> was maybe a little bit over-optimistic. Um, but we have been playing with this idea of self-determination and what that means uh, for individuals and communities and cities and neighborhoods and regions, not just for nations. So I think that's probably been at the core of our thinking. What does self-determination mean? not just at a national or constitutional level, but at a smaller level and and playing with that idea. And and maybe we've not always been explicit about that, but that's kind of been an underlying thread throughout our our thinking. What strikes me reading the anthology is the kind of breadth of uh, writing and the subjects that you cover as well. Um, How was it going back and and looking at these and, and, you know, how on earth did you manage to fit you know, decide what was going to go in the book. 
Yeah, well, there's definitely lots and lots of people that we that we left out that we that feel really bad about. I suppose we did want to capture um, a range of approaches. So we've got Kathleen, Jamie, uh, which is a review piece, um, Alan Bissett, which I think is the only poem, uh, Andy Whiteman, which is a very early piece from Bella, uh, Doogie's writing, uh, which is kind of almost uncategorizable. <laughs> Sorry, Doogie, that's meant to be a, a compliment. <laughs> um, and then uh, Neil's um, arts coverage, um, uh, and Alison on, on, on rights and refugees. So it is it's very broad. And I think, you know, some of it's polemic, some of it's essay, some of it's long, long read. And, you know, we have been slagged off about that, you know, another epically long uh, Bella article. And we're kind of a bit unashamed about that, really. Um, but it is eclectic. And, and at times I've worried that it's sort of too, too broad and kind of like drifts apart. Um, but I suppose that's a, a struggle of, of definition. And that's interesting, because I think one of its great strengths is the, it's, there's a place for the long essay in there, you know, that it's all too rare these days. Um, Neil, how, what was your initial involvement with uh, Bella and you know, how did you view it when you, know, at first, when you first started interacting with it? Um, well, I mean, I've known, Mike, since since way way back, and been involved with publications with with, with him before, and you know, but I, I, Bella hadn't it hadn't exactly passed me by, but it was it was there burbling in the background, and it wasn't something that I thought that what I did really fitted 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 in. But then Mike asked me to do a couple of things early on. I think one was. Oh, one was about test departments um, early on, and mm. another about when uh, Assemble won the Turner Prize. And it was like, okay, um, I, I'm, it's interesting that, you know, he's, he's given me the space and to, to, to breathe mm. with, with pieces like that. And after that, it, it just kind of um, grew from that really. And then, Kind of at the start of lockdown, I started doing more. Mike asked me to do, you know, a couple of responses to uh, just what what cultural things that that, that were that were, were or weren't happening in lockdown, and it, it kind of grew from that. And you know, and the the, the piece in the book um, that's uh, you know that 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 really came about towards the end, towards when the UK was finally leaving leaving Europe. So, you know, it, it was, again, the breath, I mean, because there is a misconception and I probably had it that, you know, the Bella Caledonia is just about um, Scottish independence, which, you know, it, it's blatantly not. And it's interesting what you're saying about the long form, because there are so few spaces to do long form stuff. Mm. And, you know, I think it, 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 it needs to be championed in, in, in that way. Yeah, there's something about online publications which some people seem to kind of resist reading long form stuff, uh, but, but were, were they might in, in a book, but I, I don't know, but um, more power to it. I think it's definitely interesting to have them all in book format yes. because I would hope that it would send people back to see what else has you know, kind of been there. Yeah. Similarly, uh, Dougie, yourself, what was your um, initial involvement? Yeah, so, I mean, like Neil, I'd known Mike from, from early, early days. We, we first met in Iona, I think, Mike. Um, and um, I guess 
Mike's kind of been great at badgering me really to just, um, you know, produce some some work over the years really. And it's been a really good, it's been quite a good sort of kick up the arse for me at times in a way. Um, and I've really, you know, I've really enjoyed that um, because my writing has been, uh, at times I've had periods where I've been quite writing quite intensely and other times it's just not been able to be a big part of my life. And I've, and kind of over the years, so from probably quite the early days of Bella, published the odd piece there, um, sometimes commissioned by Mike, sometimes just pitching in an idea. Um, and I think um, I think probably like Neil, um, the attraction for me is this sense that this isn't just a political journal. It's actually trying to, I really like that idea that it's trying to give a kind of hinterland to the main, sure, the main focus um, has been certainly since the referendum and, and leading up to it has been this quest for independence, but it's, it's that, that independent thinking and a culture that can form around a political agenda is what particularly interests me. Um, and I don't always agree with, um, you know, some of the pieces you read there, but that, that again, that seems a strength to me. So, so my, my, um, I mean, I guess Bella, the, the kind of editor, Mike reflects the range of opinion and, and the breadth of kind of, uh, the sort of paradigm that the the journal works within, and and the attraction for me is that it's you know it's got quite a, a strong green message there. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it asserts that the arts are actually important in a culture in a society, and at a time when that seems to be just being dismissed. Um, and and its politics, you know, its politics are sort of clear and you know plural, you know, willing to hear quite. Um, quite opposing voices at times and not too scared of actually dealing with some of the more controversial aspects. So I've, I've always really enjoyed that. And I guess it's just been a great forum and I've really, I've really enjoyed being able to pitch ideas, usually have them accepted. Um, yeah. So, so I think, I think I, I was probably quite, you know, from there, from the first couple of years, I guess. And, and my, my output isn't, um, particularly overwhelming but it's fairly you know fairly steady so i so i've really i've really enjoyed that sense of collaboration with mike over the years to be honest and this idea of independent thinking i think seems to be at the heart of it That's uh, right. you know you allow people to um have things published that are they don't fit into easy boxes as some people might expect when there is a kind of central debate about independence or anything like that there's lots of you know gray areas and all that stuff which is far more attractive i feel that's right and and you know there's not there's not that many platforms if no. truth be told you know there's a lot of people who are you know who are, who are doing blogs some amazing blogs and things but that's very much it's their bag it's their thing and it's their views being expressed whereas actually if you're interested in that uh, broad platform then there's not that many spaces specifically scottish cultural political journals um whether online or in print so so it feels like it's a real um i mean it's quite a, a testament to mike's perseverance that he's kept it going really but yeah, yeah. badgering seems a, a key skill for any editor i think that's uh, definitely the case so yeah. alison and yourself were you aware of Bella caledonia before you wrote for them um, I was. I was quietly admiring from the sidelines and really delighted to see what was starting to shape up. And um, 
you know, loving the, the kind of ideas that Mike was having and the ways those were being articulated and those move into the kind of heady space that was the thinking that, you know, swirled around um, the days of National Collective, um, the kind of the, the moves to thinking what it would mean to live in a country where people might flourish in different ways. And that might mean, you know, letting some of the you know, some of the thugs in the garden flourish for a while because they bring a certain kind of shade or a certain um, set of nutrients that can then let other things pop up and develop and grow later. And I, so I, I you know, I would regularly follow and read the blogs and, and enjoy them and, and then realize that I was, um, I was really being stirred up a lot. Um, there was a lot of work that I was doing around the time of the independence referendum around questions of immigration and policy, which weren't things that I could speak about in the public space. Mm -hmm. Because it was a time when those of us involved in refugee and migration questions, which are the flip side of the central questions around what it means to be a country. Who do we let be a member of the polity? Who do we give voting rights to? Who do we give the rights of habitation to? that we had done a lot of very careful academic thinking about the way that xenophobia was being produced in England, in the United States of America, in France, in Australia in particular. And we could see some key connections. Um, we could see some key think tanks that were involved in producing that and working together. And we realized that we actually needed not to be speaking in the public space. Mm -hmm. I remember being asked um, for quote, um, from um, politicians as part of the pro-indie movement that might be used were in immigration to become a really hot topic in the last two weeks of the campaign. And just remember, I remember kind of writing these in the November before the, um, you know, the, the referendum in the September. So a long lead time in some of this work and round about the time when we were publishing, um, you know, publishing the white paper and, and just realizing if I talk about this stuff, I will produce it and perform it. And it will be exactly what the production of xenophobia industry wants of me. Mm -hmm. So I need to zip it. And anybody who knows me knows that that's quite a hard thing for me to do. I'm an academic, I profess, you know, I don't hold back. I'm forthright with my opinions. But in that context, it was really clear to me that we, we needed to be, we needed to stay on the legal ground. And so whenever we were being asked by anybody to write on these topics or offer opinion on these topics, then we would send people to the immigration lawyers and they would then speak law, legal, to the many journalists queuing up. And of course, there is no quote when you speak to a lawyer. That isn't how lawyers speak. Everything is equivocation. Nothing is the kinds of black and white and polarity that you want. And, and so I was, I was itching actually to get a chance to start to let my opinions flow and maybe start to write for some of the pro-indie press, you know, and obviously I have a column with The National that I, I love to write and enjoy writing um, for, uh, but also have found that, that Bella has been a really great space and really lovely. And I've always felt a kind of slight fangirl thing go on every time I'm invited, because I remember having to hold back and, um, and just, you know, thinking, oh, great, there's a space here. Because just like everyone else has said, I love the eclecticism, the slight eccentricity, the ability of opinions to be written about that 
with which I profoundly disagree, but which can be written about beautifully and can be written about with poise and with a graciousness. And I think that is real, really, you know, goes to, to Mike's vision and the general spirit of the publication um, that is still held true. You know, what is it that we might at our very best hope for, for cultural, political, ethical, hopeful, and also spiritual debate within a very cosmopolitan vision that is not based on the bourgeois classes. So that cosmopolitanism in Bella for me is opened out to be something that can be felt at all levels of society and across different races and genders and classes. And that to me is a really, I think it's a really amazing vision. It's, it's kind of not surprising to me that it hasn't hit the mainstream because it's not where the mainstream is, yeah. but it's always the edges um, that are rich. You know, in permaculture philosophy, these are the richest spaces. You know, the edge of the woodland is where the medicinal plants grow. And I very much see Bella as being part of that, part of sustaining the edges of the thought wood and making sure that it's protected and, you know, that there's a, a great deal of different pioneering work can go on in that space. Um, before a, we were going to have this uh, interview, I was rereading your own pieces and your piece in particular, um, Alison, uh, When I Needed a Neighbour. I'd read it before when I first read the, the anthology, but to read it again and put it in the context of what's happening in Ukraine now really brought me to tears or close to it. Um, is that something that you, can you explain a little bit about the essay and then if you've kind of reflected on it in a, a you know, very contemporary way? You know, having said everything I've just said about that slight fangirl feeling, I'd actually forgotten I'd written this piece. And it came out of a real blur, you know, that, that there, my, my life is lived because of the work I do in what is what feels like a permanent war zone, because I'm living the backwash of every conflict in the world. Um, and, and, and living it through, obviously, the lens of UNHCR, but also the, the latest waves of people who will arrive. So the Syrian refugees, the Afghan refugees, the Libyan refugees, the refugees from Eritrea and the Tigray war, though very, very few are able to reach us. And now, of course, Ukraine and, and the many other conflicts where people move into other regions. Um, and then, of course, the, the, the Black Lives Matter moment arrived. And it too felt like it had the same structure of feeling that Raymond Williams talks about to um, the, the, the feel of a war. You know, suddenly something's exploded. Suddenly something has happened. Suddenly the people are making their homes on the street um, and in a very powerful way. And, and the mask has slipped and we're seeing something very real. And I know that Mike um, put out, uh, it was on the 2nd of June, um, 2020, Mike put out a call which said, call out to faith leaders to step up and in to talk about the moral vacuum in public office, state brutality and our unprocessed grief and anger, anyone out there. And I think Mike, yours was yes, responding to the Black Lives Matter moment and George Floyd, but it was also responding to the real anger people were starting to feel at that point as we were loosening lockdown restrictions and uh, the, 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 the immense grief people have felt was being, uh, was, was being processed, but also 
the, the realization of what it is we have with the Johnson government, that we have an extreme right-wing government in power that has not been elected by democratic means, and that there was a beginning and a dawning of that. Carol Cadwallader had done her TED talk around that time. And so I, I kind of read it across that. Um, and to me, as somebody, and this is where Iona is the connection again, um, but as somebody who is a member of the Iona community, who is within a, I'm not sure whether it's a post-Christian, a trans-Christian, um, a trans-spiritual tradition, but who was raised within the Protestant tradition and um, who has um, attended church for much of her life, who's a person who prays, but who is also no longer within um, a, a worshipping community on a regular basis. Um, largely as an act of protest against the treatment of, of women, but also some of the, the immensely painful debates around gender and sexuality, then I um, felt I really, I, I really wanted to step into a space that's in the public domain, I, not to talk to the churches about internal matters or to faith communities about internal matters, but to be able to speak more freely in the kind of generous space that, that, that Mike offers and that Bella offers, and to be able to, to try out a language that is a language that is, um, is born out of the, what I see as the best of the Christian tradition, of the, tr the tradition of social justice, the tradition of George MacLeod, the tradition that has led to so many amazing institutions across Scotland and amazing charities, most of which are secular, but which, you know, the sustaining of Scottish CND by the Christian um, CND wing over the many, many years, all of that. I, I just thought there's a, there's a place here for a voice that speaks spiritually and that might also um, speak alongside the voice of my dear friend, um, Alistair McIntosh, the Quaker, um, who's speaking out a very, a very different tradition um, to mine and a much more masculine tradition to mine. And that maybe there was a voice I could bring out of the neighborliness, the everydayness, but also out of the, the radical theological thinking that informs the rule of the Iona community, but also the, the traditions that I think with and can maybe bring a different understanding to what it means to live in an age where, um, to use very theological language, the angel of protection that is over a country, that a country imagines itself to have. You know, we have the figures of Bridget or of Andrew or of Columba in our traditions, but also the raising up of other figures like the raising up of, of George Floyd or the raising up of a moment in our history like Ken Muir Street or like the Glasgow Girls, what these do to our imagining and what that spirit is, that, that, that very um, material, because these are material realities, but they also bear within them a kind of transcendent spirit that is highly contagious. It goes viral uh, and what it might mean to think about that and then to think about it around the, the very simple, practical, beautiful act of neighborliness but which is also where on a day-to-day -day basis we work out how to live in peace with one another because neighbors eh? I mean I've got the most amazing neighbors but every now and then you really just think you've done what or why did you park there or honestly what were you thinking with the color of that door and and all of those things are kind of these tiny like micro seeds of violence or points where we might come into a, a moment where we're 
We're no longer able to live in a neighborly way with one another. And that cup of sugar can't be borrowed. Yeah. And Rowan Williams speaks, the former Archbishop of Canterbury speaks about the old idea of charity, the Christian idea of charity, not in the kind of sense of, you know, the white savior models of aid that are rightly critiqued a lot of the time, though are also incredibly important to our world. But he speaks about charity as, uh, as the ability to meet and greet and eat with one another. That daily act of just nodding over the hedge and saying, how are you? Or are you better now? Or do you need anything from the shops? Or do you want to borrow our lawnmower? Those acts of neighborliness are the glue, the thing that holds us together in our social bondedness. And I really wanted to think that space in the chapter um, and a chapter, I'm calling it a chapter because it's quite a long piece, um, but, but to think about neighborliness and to do it from a song that everyone sung in assembly out yeah. of the Christian tradition, but a secular song, when I needed a neighbor, were you there? were you there? And the need to repeat it because we always need reminding. You can't say something once. Repetition and rehearsal is a really good principle to social justice and to social workings in society. So what Alison was saying uh, there, Mike, is interesting. Um, you know, I kind of reinterpreted the piece, reading it again in the current context. And was that something you did in general when you were looking back over these pieces? Because there's a few of them. There's one which references Prince Philip, you know, who was, but there's a few of them that have different contexts reading them now. Yeah, so it, it, they are um, published from sequence. Um, and I suppose the selection was deliberately to represent the different forms and mediums that people write in. Um, but there are also ones like there's a Peter Arna essay that went viral in, in 2014 about the consequences of voting no. Uh, there's also one by Laura Eaton-Lewis about um, the kind of gendered roles in leadership and media, which uh, kind of landed like a bomb uh, when she wrote it and, and I wanted to include that. So, yeah, sometimes you, you, you do look back and I mean, I think, um, I think we're at such a kind of impasse at the moment on all sorts of levels as a society and not just in Scotland and there's this there's that phrase, there's a time to cast the nets and a time to, to pull the nets in and fix them. And I, th I think we're definitely in that moment of needing to pull the nets in and fix them. And, and it feels like the book's really an opportunity to do that, to sort of pause, because I think publishing, digital publishing is so easy. The tendency is to, to publish constantly, just to churn it out. And I know that's a tendency that I'm guilty of. Um, so in a way, this is quite a good moment to sort of say, look, just stop, <laughs> just slow down and stop and have some self-reflection and reflection, some collective reflection on um, what this publication is about and where we're at. And, um, and yeah, definitely reread things um, in a new context in the time that we're in now. Because uh, Dougie, your piece, um, Cranstack, what's it? Oh, I've forgotten the name of it now, that's terrible. Cranstacky. And and Stacky, yeah. Yeah. Um, that even that has its a, a kind of change now because when you wrote it, was it the first lockdown? Like, um, yeah, no, it was it was the first, yeah, it was that's right. I mean, it was it was actually I'd gone for a long walk uh before lockdown, but the piece was published as we were mid lockdown in the middle of lockdown, and I suppose it was that's right, it was a kind of reminder that that world is out there waiting for us um so so at the time that it was published on the 
on online it was a kind of all of us you know stuck in our houses and our flats imagining the possibility of walking up a hill again um yeah. but yeah um because what seemed to happen quite quickly after that was that nearly everyone i knew when they could ended up up a hill or up a mountain you know folk i wouldn't think would ever have uh, put a pair of walking boots on that's where they seem to be and yeah. what your piece has is a kind of idea of going back out and contemplating nature and contemplating yourself as well and i think that hmm. you know that's not as easy to do when suddenly you know the cities are emptied and the, and the hills are alive yeah <laughs> although the great thing about scotland is you know i mean it's a small country but it's it's more than big enough to absorb you know and i guess i guess in a way part of what i'm interested in is exploring those places that aren't the kind of honeypot spots you know it's like and 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 i guess hopefully encouraging others to seek some of these other places out um just because and and, and i suppose the, the key thing for me is and I've, I've sort of thought quite a lot about this, you know, getting out in the hills and walking, it's not, you know, a lot of people use it as the outdoor gym in a way, you know, it's like, right, I'm going to go and it doesn't really matter uh, just so that I can tramp up a mountain and that's it. And there was that great thing two or three years ago when the Scottish Mountaineering Council teamed up with the Gamekeepers Alliance to complain about the Scottish government's proposal to increase woodland cover. And uh, and they had a spokesman on. I mean, they got he got pelters for it, but it was the guy that the spokesman for Scottish Mountaineering Council said, you know, we don't want to lose all our views. You know, we don't want to go for wandering through woods for miles and miles and miles before we get to the to the views. And I, at the time, it just infuriated me. I've I've written about it. You know, it's like, gosh, that's the outdoor gym. You know, that's the just nothing gets in the way of my fix, my mountain fix. And I guess what I'm really interested in is suggesting that actually uh, there's a different way to walk in landscape, you know, and it's and it's not just this empty thing that you you can use for exercise, you know, it, it brims with culture and and deeper meaning, you know, and it's not this empty vistas, you know, it's actually, these are lived landscapes. Um, yeah. And I guess that's, I think a lot of my writing is trying to encourage that sense that here, you know, we've been in these remote glens for thousands of years. And actually uh, to ignore that is just to do a disservice to the, the culture and history that's that's there. Um, so I guess I'm hopefully kind of excavating, yes, my own um, fairly joyful encounters with these mountains and, and, and coasts and hills, but also uh, digging into what what cultures there as well as nature, yeah, that would be. It did yeah. put me in mind of uh, Nan Shepherd's The Living Mountain, or the idea that's it's not right. about getting there, it's about being there, and that's the kind of most yeah. important thing. And again, it's giving a different side to Scotland, and I think that's what the anthology does. It's it it, it gives a outline um, of what Bella Caledonia does, but it also kind of you know looks at what Caledonia does as well in a kind of wider sense and um, your, your, Nessie, uh, your essay Neil uh, your Nessie there was a good slip oh, there you go <laughs> it's like it, it, it's a myth it doesn't exist <laughs> <laughs> but it's um, a song for Europe lost in translation on a grand tour and one it's a lovely example of what we were talking about the long essay you know just that it, it, it kind of has the space to breathe and go off in unexpected tangents, which it really does. But it also puts Scotland again in this culturally in a European context, which is still quite rare. Most people think 
Scotland, particularly Western Scotland, I have to say, and it's America, it's over the Atlantic and it's all that thing. But, you know, by going in through this interesting beginning of the Eurovision Song Contest and, and kind of finding a way around Europe is a really interesting way of doing it. And is that where, it's that idea again, independent thinking and slightly different thinking. Is that kind of what you were driven to do when you wrote it? Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, it, that came out, came about, I think, I, I suppose, because it was, it, it's not dated in the book, but it, 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 it was first published, I think the day before UK left, left the EU on the um, 30th of December, 2020. And I suppose this has been brewing for a while and the way growing up, you know, your experiences of Europe uh, is this secondhand experience, be it from Eurovision when you're a kid watching or, or whatever, watching Eurovision. And it's the first time that you uh, encounter songs in different languages or countries like Luxembourg, which I, I age seven, I'd never heard of. And, you know, and I like, see so you've got all this secondhand and then you, you I mean, the, the essay is it's kind of a love letter or an elegy to that experience of Europe in a way, and you know, the way you're exposed, be it through um, French films or Penguin Modern Classics or, you know, pop songs and all of that, experiencing it secondhand and developing, I suppose, a romance about it. And then the first time you go you, to, to experience it firsthand, you realize how ill-equipped you are linguistically. The classic Brits abroad thing of not knowing other languages and um, uh, yeah, just just being a little bit rubbish uh, 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 abroad, um, but then you know discovering uh, 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 that you know it, it's very very different from from your perceptions, but they still all matter. Then the, and the, the the kind of love affair with Europe it, it, it does exist because you know growing up in the late seventies early eighties, European culture it, it, it was vital then. You know and now. You know, we grew up watching Jean-Luc Godard, um, people who were now, uh, young people now, you've got Emily in Paris. It's like, you know, it's, it, 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 interesting bookends, but using the Eurovision Song Contest um, as, a, you know, that was, that was the nearest you got to a holiday abroad, really. And there's, I say, you know, it's, it's got room to breathe and it's also got room to give little nuggets of information and, and uh, possible, um, uh, mythology as well. Uh, anyone interested to get a pop myth has to go and read this because there's a, a few crackers in there. Um, well, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. Well, just um, uh, well, I, 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 yeah. Go and go and read it yourselves. I mean, yeah, oh, no, the, whole, the, whole, the whole thing about uh, whether whether um, uh, Vienna by Ultravox was originally called Dunfermline, which someone told me it was once upon a time. I've never been able <laughs> to find any evidence of that at all, but, and I don't know where it came from, but, but you know, but things like, like that. Um, a, a certain Scottish pop star who was noted for uh, reading the first page and the last page of uh, Penguin Modern Classics. Um, so they knew how it began and how it ended and could, Spraff on about it in conversation, things oh, like that that came up, or the yeah. fact that Charles de Gaulle was the man who founded it to knock out. That's crazy. It is. It's it's one of these pieces of writing that along the way I was thinking, is he just throwing this in for the gullible? Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know. 
basically all of influence on the Ramones and all the stuff, but I'm sure it's 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 well done. Well, yes, yeah. I mean, I mean, well, things I discovered, you know, like the you know a couple of those things I've just mentioned, and the the Bay City Rollers Ramones connection. You know, these are things I discovered as well, and your jaws on the floor because you think, is that true? And you know, but you I mean the the, the Rollers. Uh, Ramon's connection. I mean, I, I think that is. I mean, that's in the documentary, and it, it's like, and it's like, okay, that that's that that's really is that is that the one about the drum intro? No, um, it's the the Saturday night, uh, um, um, what is it? night, and the story goes that when the Rollers were touring uh, America. Uh, that uh, the Ramones were uh, got wind of this. I mean, because there were posters of the, the Rollers everywhere, and the Ramones were playing CBGBs. And like, and Saturday Night was never released as a single in the UK, but only in the US, I think. And uh, they, and then they came AO, let's go. And yeah. like, so that's what um, I can't remember who it was who said this in the documentary. But your jaws on the floor. I mean, that's you know that the whole it kind of confounds. Um, it, 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 your history of of pop that you know uh, New York punk was kind of influenced by a, a bubblegum uh, pop band from Edinburgh. Yeah, it's fantastic, fantastic. So, Mike, I mean, we've we've talked about some of the um, articles and essays that are included and the range of them as well. And you mentioned earlier on that some people, you know, you think probably you've been too eclectic and it's something that you know often gets said about what well, I do Scots well, hey or you should focus on one thing and don't but when your interests are wide I find that you just want to you know kind of satisfy them all and is that kind of what you want to do as well instead of going this is political and that's it you know it's it's limiting rather than anything else yeah, I mean, so I'm I'm kind of obsessed about the the Scots generalist tradition and and try and reflect that, but also you know I think people are multifaceted and I think people just get bored by politics as a single lens. You know, um, that's not really how we how we experience the world. So um, I wanted to reflect that that breadth and um, and bring in music and the arts and, and all sorts of different stuff. And some of it's just kind of polemic and some of it's just kind of <laughs> ranting. Um, but that that's, I think there's a place for that. Um, I suppose the, the, the fear of being too eclectic is just, <clears throat> it's nice to be loose, but if at a certain point that looseness kind of dissembles and does it become incoherent for people who are like, well, what is this, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, but then I also, I'm increasingly not bothered about traffic. Um, so I kind of worry less about that. When I was more worried about we need to drive uh, readership and traffic and build that, that does lend yourself to be, let's get the clickbait, let's get the topics that we know will get big readership, let's get more um, tabloidy or sensational. And, you know, occasionally you can do that, um, but, yeah, I'm kind of, I'm kind of less and less inclined to really care. Yeah, I think that's probably a healthy thing uh, in the long run. And these things can come along, as you see, the Peter Arnott piece by just by accident, without you trying to kind of get something out of there. So what is, now you've got the anthology out, 
um, which people can get in all good bookshops and from uh, Leventon Books as well, I believe. Yep. What's next? What are you looking to do? Have you got any idea what the next 14 years are going to hold? Well, I think we're just going to have a wee lie down. Yes. <laughs> I thought that might be um, a good idea. No, no, we've got a few things up our sleeve. Um, we're, we're launching a new podcast next week and we're, we're launching a redesign of the website and we're working with some uh, other people that will that we'll kind of announce next week um, to, to encourage more young writers to get involved. Because I think like, uh, like me, the, the, the readership and the writership is kind of uh, growing older. So we definitely need to kind of work to, to counter that a bit. So yeah, we've got a few, a few new projects on, on the, um, in planning. And I think there is a need to sort of reinvent yourself and refresh yourself. Otherwise it kind of, you know, goes stale. So we're working to do that. And I think also um, there's a couple of kind of shifts of focus in terms of, uh, I think we'll probably focus more on Scottish political structures and institutions and power bases than just Westminster ones um, in the next wee while. And I think also we're going to respond to the fact that the coming sort of social crisis is, is likely to be bigger than, than anyone can really imagine. So yeah. I think that will that will require a shift of emphasis as well. Yeah. Well, I think that's the perfect place to leave it. But thank you so much to all of you for taking the time to have a chat. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Alistair. Thank you very much. Alistair. Yeah. Yeah. Nice to meet you. And you. And uh, we'll be back soon with someone completely different. Yeah.